Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones, and there's no Yen Shippel today. He couldn't make it to record the episode of the pod, the last one for 2018, so I am flying solo. And uh, yeah, we got a good guest on though. Uh, so I'm excited to bring one more to you. I didn't know if we'd have another one before the end of the year. Turns out we do, and uh, it was a good conversation. Uh, I got a chance to talk to Sean McConnell, uh, about his music, uh, life on the road, kind of his up and coming in uh, in the music industry, and uh, so much more. So we'll get to that in uh, a little bit. Uh, before we do, though, the holidays are almost over, so I am uh, actually pretty relieved. I'll be honest, because I don't know. Each year uh, they get more and more stressful. For me and I don't know if anybody else has, uh, I'm sure others are in that same boat and a lot of people have much bigger problems than I do when it comes to the, the holidays but I'm going to share some of my insight and some of my, you know my experience from the holidays being as uh, just got past Christmas um, I uh, have talked before on the podcast I'm sure about uh, how kind of a minimalist, I'm not a super minimalist, like I can live in a box or anything like that uh, without, you know, rub a couple sticks together and uh, and create a fire. I'm, I, I'm not that much of a minimal, min, minimalist, but there's not much I really need. I didn't ask, you know, my family for really anything for Christmas. I, uh, you know, just enjoy getting together and, uh, and celebrating and enjoying each other's company in moderation. Uh, I mean, there's, there's a limit to that as well, right? Um, my family stresses me out a little bit sometimes and I, as I'm sure all families do. So, uh, so there's that, right? Uh, and, uh, and then there's the kid aspect of, uh, of, needing to provide presents and go down the uh, rabbit hole of, you know, with Santa. So you can't just get the presents from me. They have to have the, the presents from Santa as well. And, and it's a lot. It's a lot to handle, you know, because there's just stockings also. It's just one thing after another after another. And really it's stressful and it's too much. Like I – I love my kids to the end of the world. They're great. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of pressure to uh, to give them stuff, give them things that they don't need, things that they probably won't touch more than once, if once uh, at that point, right? Um, I had to push back on some items that my mom had gotten for my son because he just wouldn't wear the clothing that she uh, had gotten to him. Uh, and... Uh, and just told her, hey, you should take this back because there's no way he's going to wear it. Um, and that's a different conversation, but uh, I want to talk more about my own kind of struggles with the holidays. Part of it comes from the other side of the family uh, and from my side of the family as well. So, I mean, their mom, my kid's mom, I'm divorced, um, and in case the audience didn't know that, uh, but the the kid's mom you know, really uh, goes big on, on Christmas, as does her family. Uh, her mom does as well. I mean, all the time, kind of throughout the year even. And so my, my kid's mom, two weeks before Christmas, uh, to my understanding, bought my daughter an American Girl doll. And uh, I didn't bring this up to her because there's really no point. Um, I don't see it changing anything. But, I, I mean, uh, American Girl dolls are kind of the epitome of – spoiled children in, in my opinion i mean it's an expensive toy uh, 125 dollars for a doll that 
it's just too much. That's ridiculous. That shouldn't be paid at any point, let alone just on a whim and not even as a Christmas gift. Two weeks before Christmas, uh, nonetheless. So she needs to learn to say no, but she can't. Um, and, uh, and I don't think that'll make my daughter into a good person. So I, I don't do that sort of thing. Uh, that being said, I do read my daughter American Girl Doll books because I think that the stories are really legit and, um, and appropriate for her age. Um, so we, we read those stories together, but, uh, that's a much cheaper hobby than, uh, than playing with the dolls themselves. And, so, and I mean, she has the whole house and everything that costs like 400 something dollars and other dolls and, and all of that that go along with it. It's, it's just too much and ridiculous. It's spoiled, you know, and it's not necessary, but so that's one piece, uh, you know, so I feel like they're going to get this experience at the other house that, and if they don't get anything under the tree at my house, you know, it won't be equivalent. And I need a lot of it's on me to get past that mi mindset, right? Uh, I need to find a way past that mindset because we had Christmas at my, at my house. My mom and sister came over. We only had a few hours with the kids uh, bef uh, before they went to their mom's house. And so um, we had breakfast, my mom, my sister, my girlfriend, and uh, the kids and I. And then um, they tore through gifts, barely looking at them before moving on to the next one, right? And my, my mom and sister brought over a bu bunch of gifts for the kids as well. And it's just this pile, never-ending pile of gifts that you know, drove us, you know, uh, through the morning without even really getting to use them before they were whisked away. So, uh, at, at one point I just shut down. I just was like out of it and just let them do their thing. And it was just like, okay, when is it going to end? It was too much. It's just too much. And, uh, and, uh, and I needed to kind of get out and get some fresh air and breathe because I'm just like, what is going on here and what have I done? So what have I created? What or contributed to? So, uh, so that's, that's really taxing for me. Uh, and, um, and I had to, you know, I had to be okay with just letting it wind up how it's going to wind up. So, so we did that. And then I got a couple hours break and then back to my mom's house for, for dinner with, uh, with my girlfriend and, and more presents. The adult gifts were at night. And so it's like, okay, all this stuff that I don't really need because I didn't ask for anything. Sure. Okay. I'll use, I'll use it. New kitchen stuff, stuff that I pr probably wouldn't have bought myself or if I would have, it would have taken me a little bit more time, it, which was thoughtful for my sister. It's great, but I want to find a way next year to, uh, to get past that, to be able to move past the need for all the presents and maybe just a couple small things and really just kind of set the tone with the kids leading up to it and throughout the year that, hey, we're not going to do a big Christmas this year. We're not going to do a ton of presents. They can do whatever they want at their their mom's house. That's up to their mom. But but for me, it's not going to be this big thing. Uh, and instead, you know, take the, some of the money that I would have spent, not all of it probably, because I'm, I don't even want to get into how much I ended up spending. It's or I don't want to look. When I do my budget <laughs> at the end of the month, I'm probably going to pass out. Like, it's just ridiculous. Uh, but uh, take some of that money and take the kids on a trip. Have them Give them an experience. And that's something I tried to do this time. I'm taking my daughter uh, horseback riding uh, for her first time, which she's pretty excited about. She had, she had actually asked for it, and, uh, and I don't think she expected it, but, but I'm doing it. And 
uh, it's going to be a fun daddy-daughter date for us. So, so that'll be great. But I want to do more like that. I want to get, you know, take them on a trip or something. Not anything outlandish or far away, but something to get them out and share an, an experience together. It doesn't have, even have to be far, but something we can do together that we haven't done probably before would be ideal. That's what I want to do for my kids. Uh, and so, so I'm going to try and figure out how to brace that. And then the other part of that is, uh, is I'm going to have to set that tone with family as well. And that, Hey, we're not doing a whole big thing this year. Um, if you want to contribute to this trip that I'm going to give the kids, that would be fine and great. If not, okay. Uh, but, uh, but I don't know how to approach that offhand with people who are not minimalist like me, people who uh, place a value on things uh, and like getting things and, uh, and that kind of, and that makes them feel good to get things and have things in their life. Right. That's not me. And I know that I'm, you know, kind of in a minority with that, uh, that take on, uh, on, on the need, but I just, I have the things I, I have, you know, and if it works great, that's good enough for me. If it, uh, if it doesn't, it needs to be replaced. Okay. I'll replace it, but not everything all at once. And I'm not going to go crazy. Right. If I can find a way to make it work, I'm going to do it. So, so that's the holidays. That's where I'm at with the holidays. I'm, I'm pretty happy to be getting on the tail end of it here. I have my sister's birthday in a couple of days. That's so that's one more. And then new year's Eve, uh, girlfriend and I are going to, uh, a friend's uh, party. So we're going to do that. There's another, maybe a, um, you know, a little gathering with a, you know, a friend as well uh, for a dinner. But besides that, nothing, nothing really huge. We're getting to the tail end here and I'm ready to get into January and slow down with the spending, slow down with the craziness and just kind of uh, take a breather for a moment uh, with uh, and enjoy the company of my kids. Um, that's, uh, that's what I'm going for. So there's that. Uh, there's also the, um, I mean, we talk about hunting on uh, pretty much every podcast, so I'll just touch on it a, a little bit um, here before we get into uh, our guest, and that is um, we're getting into January, so we have just, I think, just over four weeks left uh, of duck hunting season. This is my first duck hunting season, and um, and it's been really interesting experience one that i didn't expect it to be like uh, to be honest and um i haven't really hit any birds since opening day which is insane to me it's a really a shock and so i've had to toy with this uh this idea of whether you know this is the right hobby for me or or not i've invested a lot financially i've invested a lot emotionally i've invested you know, a lot in my method and my practice and gearing up to where I am right now. And, uh, and there's a couple of, it's easy to make excuses for why I haven't done well, uh, hunting this season. Uh, you, you know, and we have the rice blind that we res- rented, um, some friends and I, and we put a lot of work into that. We painted, uh, over, you know, 150 decoys, almost 200 decoys, probably, um, bought a lot of supplies for it, took it out. And we have this spot that's our own. I can go out anytime. I can go out right now if I want to and, uh, and shoot it seven days a week, as opposed to public land, uh, uh, refuges that, which is what, um, I observed my friends doing last season where they, they hit a lot of birds and, uh, uh and you can only sh- uh, hunt three days out of the week, Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. So it was, 
you know, a lucrative idea. It was a great idea in theory to have the, the rice blind, um, but it hasn't really produced at all. I, I mean, to my understanding, I think there's only been like seven birds maybe taken from the uh, the rice blind, uh, four on one day, uh, maybe eight, <laughs> two another day, th- three, three, there was three another day. Okay. So but anyway, probably less than 10 birds taken from the rice blind and no geese. Uh, we were expecting to stack birds, uh, you know, and at this point, the migration is here, uh, so there should be birds working uh, the blind. But either our setup isn't right, the area isn't great for it right now. Um, my understanding is other blinds nearby um, aren't getting a lot of birds either, uh, so it might not just be us, but we might need to change our approach in some way. And and part of um, Part of it is I've, you know, been putting so much into this rice blind that I feel this obligation to go out and try and hunt it. It's really easy also. I mean, I can drive out there. It's a bit of a drive, but it's uh, easy to get to. It's easy to get onto as uh, as well. It's a 12-minute walk from the car to uh, to get in the blind, and then you can just start shooting. Uh, I mean, of course, during nor- during hunting hours. But, uh, but so that's been really appealing and I, I like the ease of it and I, I don't think I deserve the ease of it though as um as a new hunter I think I have to do my time and do and, and put the work in um you know gutting it out at the uh on public land first and so I've been doing going on some hunts on public land as well but uh, but haven't done well there. And there haven't been a ton of opportunities like I'm used to on public land on the hunts that I've been on. Uh, so a lot of it's learning. At each time, each hunt I go out on, I'm learning uh, still. And what's most important, I think, is that I enjoy it. I enjoy getting out uh, to the blind. I, uh, I enjoy getting out in the water and just being in the outdoors, seeing the sunrise. Uh, in, in, I mean, it's just incredible to to be there and do it and even though i haven't hit any birds i enjoy every hunt i've uh i've been out on really um and i've and i've learned and i'm getting better and i'm having to make a lot of mistakes i'm making some mistakes uh, along the way uh and a part of that's a process of my learning but uh but i i don't want to give up at it so I'm going to keep going for the next uh, four plus weeks and, you know, and try and really hone my craft and, and uh, put my all into it and maybe, you know, take some more days off of work to get out there and just do it. Um, that's my goal anyway. So, um, so we'll see. We'll see how it all shakes out. Um, I'll, of course, keep it updated, keep everyone updated as, um, you know, I make any progress and or lack thereof. But... Um, but I'm happy to, to just get out and do that. So, so it's been fun. All right. Uh, so that's, uh, the, an update on my front. Uh, hopefully Enzo will be able to be on the next podcast. Um, I'm guessing early next year, we don't have anything lined up right now as far as interviews. So we're, we're going to take it slow for a couple of weeks. And, uh, also I do want to, you know, invest more time into hunting. So that's going to you know, involve, you know, slower, time for concert pipeline and the holidays are typically slower for concerts anyway so there's not a lot of great shows coming through right uh the bay area right now so um all right so let's talk about sean mcconnell um he has a a new album that's coming out in february called secondhand smoke uh and 
uh, and we talk about that. We talk about a, a lot of great stuff. Um, and, uh, and he's one of these artists I wasn't familiar with going in, but, um, I knew his publicist, uh, and, and she offered uh, me an interview with him, I'm sure. And I'm like, uh, so I decided, sure, why not? I'll talk to him. I listened to some of his music, uh, and, uh, and dug uh, some of it as well. Um, it's not all, uh, music I would listen to in, you know, without, um, having it brought to me, but, um, but I'm glad I gave it a listen and got a chance to talk to Sean. So, uh, let's go ahead and bring Sean in here, uh, on concert pipeline and, uh, Circle back after the interview. I'm here. How you doing, Steve? Hey, doing well. How you? How's it going, Sean? Good. E- excellent. Are you ready for the holidays? I, I think I am. I think I'm ready to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> With kids, you know, it's always just like, oh yeah, you got to do this, and I got this thing, and do we have the stockings also, right? And I don't have enough for that. And I think last year, I think the day before Christmas, I was like, oh yeah, the stockings, I had like nothing for them. So, you know, it's <laughs> it's just always something else on yeah, top. Yeah, it's a mad dash. It is, and you get yeah. to spend it with everybody in town, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. The whole clan. Yeah, yeah. So thanks for taking the time today. I uh, look forward to uh, talking to you about, you know, your your new album specifically. I mean, we can start there. Um, Secondhand Smoke. Tell me a little bit about how uh, that album came about. Yeah, this record was a, a much different process for me. Um, I did it all in my home studio, and once I had a handful of songs that I knew belonged together, and I started really writing for a new project. I started recording, um, kind of writing and recording at the same time here at my home studio in Tennessee, and um, took a took a long time and was real patient with it, and kind of married the whole writing and recording process, and uh, just let myself kind of marinate in this creative world of playing all these instruments and writing songs and being up late and having time to really explore, you know, these different sonic landscapes. And it was a real, it was a real thrill. This is a, a much different process for me on this record. Yeah. So, so who did you work with uh, to create the album? Did you bounce it off, uh, ideas off, have someone to bounce it off with? I know you're um, pretty independent in your, um, um, at least your performances. Yeah. I mean, other than, uh, you know, my wife and uh, my manager who, also is a great A and R guy. Um, between that, there there really wasn't anyone involved. With it was just kind of creating a record I believed in, and that my manager um, was definitely a sounding board for you know the, putting the collection together. Um, but other than that, uh, you know, it was just that very small, very not too many chefs in the kitchen on this one. Yeah, it was was this the first one that you did in your home studio? Was it uh, or? Uh, have you used up that before? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was it was the first full record I've done I've done here. And, and so, tell me about uh, about that process for you, kind of just being in your own environment. I know in past uh, albums you've actually gone away to like a cabin, even for a couple of weeks to kind of just uh, completely separate. Tell me tell me about how the process is differentiated from that perspective. Yeah, this one was was pretty indulgent in the fact that there was no, um, you know, there's no clock. You're not watching the clock for studio time or paying, you know, players being on the clock. There was none of that pressure. So it was really a lot of 
downtime, um, just kind of getting quiet and on my own in this uh, in this little studio, and um, you know a lot of a lot of late nights, and we blocked off a good chunk of time this year for me to do that. So it was really a lot of you know going on tone quests and spending a lot of time getting the amp the way I wanted it and the drums and um, a lot of ex- exploration going on. A real very patient process and. Um, it was the most time I've ever had to create a record, for sure. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of your writing is autobiographical, um, but you also delve into the, the fictional a little bit as well, right? So tell me, tell me kind of about that approach. Where do, you put, where do you put yourself in versus where do you kind of fictionalize? Man, especially on this record, I almost feel like what might be considered fictional speaks a little more to to the truth, you know, um, it really points to actual things that are harder to talk about in just black and white terms. So a lot of the, what, you know, a lot of the fictional imagery on this record is actually pointing to, uh, things that are happening in my life or around, around me in my life. Um, and I think that when you enter those, those realms of fiction, you can almost express yourself in a more felt way than, than in an explained way, if that makes sense. Um, so there's a lot more of that on this record, which was, was well, you know, it was pretty liberating as a writer to kind of dip my toe in those waters as opposed to just a little more, uh, you know, down, you know, storytelling autobiographical, which there's still a lot of that on this record too, but in a different way. Yeah, and I mean, talking on the autobiographical side, like everything that's good, I, I get the sense that's about your your daughter. Is that accurate? Yeah, yeah, it's it's a song about my daughter for sure. Yeah, so so tell me about how you you know where that count came from for for you to be able to write that song. It's a it's a really good song. I really like it. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, that's just it's harder. It's. I've wanted to write a song about her. Um, it's hard. It's a hard thing to do to write a song about your kids because um, it can come off as corny or, or you don't feel like you can find the words to say. And that song actually came to me while she was in the studio. I was writing it with her in the in the room with me, which is a really fond memory that I have. Um, but you know, we all we all feel our kids are so special and want to share them with the world, and so that song. It's one of my favorites on the on the record, and it's one of my favorites to perform. Um, I was just trying to, you know, express the way I feel about her and how magical she is and how innocent she is and how beautiful she is. Yeah, I, I get the sense, I mean, you you and your wife both kind of have this, you know, I mean, really great connection with with your daughter. I saw, you know, you'd posted, a, you know, a link to um, uh, Mary's coloring book that she made for uh, kids with with special needs, and that that was really cool. I, I have a kid with you know with special needs as well. He's autistic, and and you know, and so I you know I, I just really like the connection there, and you guys being able to express it in your own ways through through your art. Oh wow, that's great! Thanks for sharing that. I'm glad you like that uh, to know about the coloring book too. Yeah, I mean that's that's a big part of her story and and a big part of that song. You know that might not be so apparent, but um, along with the world of special needs comes, you know, special circumstances and you know hard things, but also very beautiful things. So that's definitely a part of that song as well. 
Yeah. And so you've, you've lived in Nashville for like 14 years now? Yeah. Yep. About 14 years. And tell me what brought you to, to Nashville? Uh, so I, I grew up in Massachusetts, lived there um, until I was about 11, and then we moved to Georgia. My, do- my dad got a job transfer, which is what brought us to the South originally. And then I moved up to uh, Murfreesboro to go to college at MTSU, which got me to Tennessee. And then met my wife in college, and this whole time, you know, I was, um, you know, playing gigs and working on songs and building a career. And then so by the time we got out of college, it, Nashville was just a, a really perfect place to plant my roots and, you know, get get down to get down to some musical business. So, and my wife is from here as well. So it's always been home for her. So, uh, yeah, we've been here about 14 years and absolutely love it. And, and so tell me about the music scene in Nashville and kind of your connection with with the scene. Do you have a lot of singer songwriter friends in in town? I know there's like music everywhere there, right? Yeah. I mean, basically all of our friends, the, the common, denominators were all songwriters or musicians and not all of us but most of us um yeah there's a huge community here and i've been not only a touring artist but a a a songwriter here in town um and which is its own you know breeds its own relationships as well so everything we do here is pretty much you know circles around music some way or another yeah, I've, I've had a couple of Nashville uh, residents on the program um, as well. Steve Poltz and Dan Leis and uh, from Augustana and uh, and it, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're I mean really great musicians, both in, in their in their own right and uh, um, and a lot of fun. So I mean, it's great to hear kind of about the in, environment out there in Nashville. Yeah, I actually wrote with Dan a few years back uh, a couple of times. We were at the same publishing company for a while. Um, but yeah, they're great guys and everyone knows everyone here in some way or fashion. Oh yeah. How, how was, uh, writing with Dan? Uh, he's, I mean, uh, Augustana used to be one of my uh, favorite bands. So I've really liked his music for, uh, for a long time. Yeah, it was fantastic. He was such a, such a great, great dude and, um, you know, very imaginative songwriter and uh, man, his his music, his new music is so great too. I mean, he's so he's tapped in. He's a he's a special songwriter, a special singer for sure. Yeah. Um, and so, music's been in your blood since you were a kid. Both of your parents are uh, were folk singers as well. So um, it seems kind of natural that you would uh, you would kind of go down that road. But it was kind of of your own accord, right? Yeah, I mean, I just grew up watching it, um, and so I never questioned if it could be, you know, if you can make a living or not. I never had that moment, you know, where people tell their parents, I'm going to be a musician, and they're like, no, you have to be a doctor. (laughs) Mine was the opposite. It was like, they are musicians, so I know you can do this. And I'd say, you know, I was, you know, just a kid watching them perform and watching my dad's song, you know, write songs. And then at about 10 or 11 is when I started, um, you know, picking up the guitar and writing songs. And I just got the bug really early and I never, really never looked back. It was just always, I always knew that's what I wanted to do. Yeah. Did did, uh, either your parents tour at all or were they mostly local musicians? 
Uh, they were local. Yeah, they were local musicians. Okay, so there was a lot of coffee houses and bars and you know church gigs and that sort of thing. Yeah. So, at what point for you uh, did you kind of uh, did tour maybe becoming a touring musician become like a reality and a necessity to your music? Um, I would say, you know, middle school, high school was definitely the, you know, cutting your teeth at the local, at the local joints and getting every gig that you can, every, everything that you can do to kind of build your audience locally. And then when I went to college, um, I started touring a little bit more and I also did, um, the NACA circuit for a number of years, which is basically a a tour of colleges, um, which brought me kind of all around the States for a couple of years. And then I'd say for the past eight or nine years, it's been kind of more of the full court press of, you know, national touring and last year and this year, dipping my toes into the international touring waters. And, um, so yeah, it's kind of grown, very organically and slowly and to what it is today. Yeah, so how do you how do you operate that with you know balancing your your family life as well? Like uh, I mean being able to see your your wife and daughter and everything, like how do you, how do you do that? Do they go out on the road with you at all or Um they don't. They don't. My wife before we got our daughter home, my wife did do a couple of tours with me which was really fun. Um but you know the way that we look at it is we've never we've never really known anything different since um we started this i've been touring so we're pretty used to it and my wife holds down the fort while i'm gone and she's a rock star and her and my daughter Abby do their life and we facetime and phone call and and then uh you know when i get home i'm home so we always think of it that way, whereas, yeah, you might be gone for two or three weeks at a time, but then when you get back, you know, it's, you know, full-on attention and time with the family as opposed to having to clock in and out from a nine-to-five type of situation. Yeah. Um, so it does balance itself out, and, uh, you know, there are, there are easier times and there's harder times, but it's what we do, and it works. Absolutely, absolutely, and it helps, I'm sure, to have the, the home studio there so you can step away, right? Yeah, it really does. Yeah, so um, so tell me about, um, you You sometimes write about religion, but you're, you're not uh, overly religious yourself, right? Um, yeah, religion's a, an odd, religious is a hard word. I don't, it comes with all sorts of baggage. I'm a very faithful faith-oriented person, um, and it definitely comes out in my music. It's very important to me, um, the mystery that surrounds all of those questions is something I'm very driven by and obsessed with and focused on in my personal life. Um, so if that's, you know, if that's religious, then I am, um, but not very dogmatic, I guess I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but come from a, a, a rich history of that, and there's huge parts of that that I still hold on to and love. And um, but yeah, uh, it's it's a very important thing to me, and uh, 
I think this record specifically kind of delves into the mystery of that more than my past albums have. And why would you say that is? Why why is it coming out like at this point? What is it for you that kind of brought that out? Um, I think it's probably just part of being older and feeling more freedom to explore those things and um, unlearning things that I feel like are unhealthy and learning things that I feel like are, are healthy, just growing as a person, growing spiritually, um, I think it's just a natural evolution of a of a person. Um, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Do you think it takes like a certain level of vulnerability to, for, at least for you, to to kind of get to that level where you're comfortable writing about that? Yeah, it is very vulnerable, um, and I think that for art to be really true, you you know, vulnerability is. A necessity. I don't think I've ever, you know, people are moved with, moved by and connect with vulnerability. Um, so I think that you have to be, you know, be a little bit brave and vulnerable and just sing about what you truly feel and believe in and put it out into the world and, and let it do what it's going to do. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and kind of tying in there, to the religious theme I mean you I don't know if you do it every time but you you do it uh, pretty often you o open your shows with uh, Queen of St. Mary's Choir which I, I think you've said is like the the song that kind of defines you the most that you've written is that is that accurate? Um, I think it yeah it's a it's, it's a very autobiographical song especially if I'm opening up a concert for an audience that doesn't know who I am. I like to lead in with that because I feel like it's like a crash course in, you know, my history and where I come from. Um, so yeah, it's, it's definitely one of those songs for me. Yeah. It's like, Hey, hey here's a, a little bit about me. Okay. We know each other now. Uh, now, now we're friends and now we, now we can play some music, huh? <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's break the ice. Exactly. I like it. <laughs> Uh, so tell, tell tell me for you because uh, uh, about writing for other artists versus kind of the the song I mean the creation of the song and de and determining whether it's going to be one that you make for yourself versus someone else like I, I mean I'm sure you've had both situations where you've you've been hired to write songs versus you know uh, versus just writing songs and then kind of um, giving them to other artists right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, I, I try to, instead of kind of splitting up my brain between the two, um, and I've learned this over, you know, over a decade of doing, of writing professionally and personally, um, now what I do is I, what I've always tried to do is just write the best song that I can that day, um, and I'm not thinking like, oh, this needs to be like this because it needs to fit here. I don't tend to really work well that way. I like to just write what I'm feeling, what I'm, what, what's exciting me in the writer's room, and then um, I'll know instinctively if it's this is a song for me, for my record, or, man, so-and-so would sound great singing this. It's not necessarily my style, and we should send it to, you know, band X and see if they would want to record it. Um, and then there's always... Um, times where there is a specific um, 
thing. Like last week, I was out riding with um, Little Big Town for a couple of days on the road. So obviously, in that situation, we're, we are writing specifically for them. Um, and so then you know, and you know, kind of what vibe they're going for. And so it's, it's kind of a, a lot of different things. But my goal is always to just write an honest song, write a good song, and write something that makes me feel something. Yeah. And, uh, and so, um, I want to I want to ask you about uh, your I mean you, you I, I'm out here on the West Coast uh, in California and uh, and I know you you came out kind of earlier in the year right around like March um, uh, April time frame when you were um, touring with Need to Breathe right um, I will be out there with Need to Breathe this coming April yeah oh it's it's this coming April okay like, for some reason I thought it was yep. like, yeah it's coming up. Oh, okay. Um, but you you were here in the Bay Area. I think you played the Chapel, right, in San Francisco. Um, trying to remember the last time I was in on the West Coast. You got me on the spot here. I can't remember. Sorry, but, I mean, it's, I, it's not a quiz. I'm not quizzing you. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, no. Uh, I, I've I've come out there. I think I think I've been out there two or three times now. Um, a couple of times headlining, and then. Uh, a few times opening up some shows for for other other bands, um, but I will be back. We're doing 15 shows in April with uh, Need to Breathe, and most of those are on the West Coast. Oh, okay, nice, nice. Yeah, I noticed that. So, um, so tell tell me about kind of per- venues that you like to perform at. What what makes a good venue for you to uh, to perform live at? Man, my whole. My whole thing is mostly about audience. Um, I want to be in front of an audience that shows up to listen, which you'd think would be a given, but we all know, you know, we've all been to those shows where that's not the case. Um, so my, you know, perfect gig is um, an audience that is coming to just kind of hang on every word, listen to a good lyric, get lost in the music, um, preferably in a, you know, a great sounding theater or somewhere where the music just kind of soars through the PA system and it's intimate and you can still kind of talk and tell stories between songs. That's my perfect type of gig. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and it looks like it was 2016. I was, I guess I was wrong. Uh, it was when you played the chapel. So early 2016. Okay. In case you're wondering. So, <laughs> so. <laughs> Oh, good. So, being the holidays, uh, I just want to ask you about you've uh, you wrote a couple of um, Christmas songs with uh, Chris Allen for uh, for your buddy Wade uh, Bowen, and uh, you wrote "Cold December" and "Merry Christmas, Baby," right? Um, yeah, "Cold December" I wrote with Chris Allen, and Wade Bowen uh, recorded it. I produced two songs for him this two Christmas songs from this year, um, and "Merry Christmas, Baby." was a song I wrote by myself years ago um, and put out as a single a couple of years ago, um, which is kind of confusing because Wade also recorded Merry Christmas Baby this year, but it's the Springsteen song. Oh, okay. So it's not the same one. <laughs> not the same one, but... Uh. <laughs> yeah, we're just trying to confuse everybody as much as we can. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, uh, but Cold December, that's that's kind of a sad Christmas song, you know? Or, uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, t- tell me where that came from. 
Man, I'm a sucker for sad Christmas songs. Yeah. I don't know what it is. Um, like Joni Mitchell, Joni Mitchell's I Wish I Had a River is my favorite Christmas song. Um, there's something about it. I mean, I feel like the, the happy Christmas song market is pretty covered. It's tapped. Everybody wants to be happy in the holidays, right? It's a <laughs> Right. Exactly. So, um, yeah, and Chris and I wrote that song a few years ago. It, it, we didn't write it this year. It's been a couple of years. Um, and I, I don't remember where it came from, but um, I love it. I think Wade did a great job with it. And, uh, yeah, I, I like, I'm a sucker for a sad Christmas song. It's, it's good, right? And it's a market that, like you said, hasn't been fully covered yet because, you know, everybody's got the happy, you know, Christmas songs in the spirit. But, you know, not everybody's yeah. happy in the holidays, right? I mean, seriously, though, uh, there's, uh, you know, it, it's tough times for a lot of people. And, uh, um, and it's, you know, got to be songs for everybody. Exactly. Exactly. We'll help. We'll help all the sad, depressed people this year. <laughs> We're there for them with, uh, <laughs> with yeah, with cold December. So, um, well, as we wind out, <laughs> I, I would ask you one more, you know, a question about uh, some one of your, I guess, most memorable experiences in uh, in music. And you said that was working with uh, Meatloaf, who um, he covered one of your songs, right? Yeah, Meatloaf was fantastic. I was a big Meatloaf fan when I was a kid. Um, one of my earliest memories is, is buying his music at the record store. And, um, this is years ago now that I got to work with him. Um, and he cut, he recorded about three or four of my songs on a record called hell in the hand basket. And it was, it was a really interesting songwriting process because he would come in and he would tell me almost in a, almost in the screenplay form, the type of song that he wanted is the, the theme. And then I would go and I would write it and see if he, if he liked what I did. And, uh, yeah. And then he ended up cutting three or four tunes on that record. And we met probably three or four different times and talked about music and the record and hung out and he couldn't have been nicer. And it was, yeah, it was a very, very cool experience. Yeah, pretty surreal, I imagine, right? To have one of your childhood kind of idols like working with you on music, right? Like, did you ever think that something like that would be able to happen? I never thought about it. Um, I really didn't. I, I never thought that far ahead. So when it was happening, it was it's very cool. And there's you know there's always moments like that where you kind of pinch yourself and you're like, wow, look at look at what's going on. You know, this is something to be very grateful for, and you're. 15 year old self would be freaking out right now yeah and uh, okay so um so the new album secondhand smoke comes out in uh in february i'm sure i'm sure it's been done for a little while and you're just ready for it to get out there right yeah yeah it's been done it's ready to go and you know everything's slowly releasing right now and then the full record comes out february 8th excellent excellent well sean thanks for for taking the time today i definitely appreciate it and uh yeah, wish happy holidays to you, your wife, your daughter, your your family, okay? Yeah, same to you and your family. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Thanks, Sean. That was the interview with Sean McConnell here on Concert Pipeline. We don't have uh, any music today for the podcast uh, since it was a phone interview. Um, and uh, 
not bringing any of his uh, stuff onto the, the podcast. He's also not coming to the Bay Area right now, so uh, we don't have any show to promote necessarily. But um, but anyway, good chat with Sean. So, all right, that takes us to our last segment for the uh, podcast, the last for the year, and uh, that is the music news. <laughs> I have some uh, interesting and fun stories to wind out the year uh, here on Concert Pipeline. Uh, the first involves Guns N' Roses. Uh, so it's been more than 10 years since Guns N' Roses released their last album, Chinese Democracy. And while there's hope that new Guns N' Roses music is on the way, we may have just gotten treated to a new Axl Rose song thanks to the TV show New Looney Tunes, which airs on the Boomerang streaming service. A new Looney Tunes episode uh, reportedly features Axl as a character. His appearance begins with him asking Bugs Bunny, Porky Pig, and company if they know where the Civic Center is, revealing he's doing a concert with his band Steel Underpants there tonight. Uh, Looney Tunes characters then tell Axel that uh, 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 a giant asteroid is about to blow up the Earth with Bugs Bunny asking, are you guys thinking what I'm thinking? And Axel responding that I should go back to wearing mesh jersey and kilt again. Uh, and so Bugs' idea is for Axel's band to play so loud that the performance blows up the asteroid. But the only problem is that Axel's band isn't with him, and uh, uh, as a giant pig fell out of the sky and crushed their tour bus. So... The characters got together back Axl Rose in concert. They play a song called Rock the Rock, uh, ultimately blowing up the asteroid and saving the world. Um, uh, it, it's kind of a little more ACDC than Guns N' Roses, and it's unknown which musicians actually backed up Axl for the recording. Um, but, of course, Axl did front ACDC in 2016 when Brian Johnson had to bow out to the band due to, due to hearing issues. So... Um, he hasn't confirmed whether he's in fact the voice of the character, but it does sound a lot like him. Uh, and uh, Guns N' Roses did use the Looney Tunes theme to open their concerts on the Not In This Lifetime tour, so there is kind of that connection as well. Uh, so um, the last week, though, guitarist Richard Fortas revealed that there would be new Guns N' Roses music faster than you think, and maybe he was talking to this Looney Tunes song uh, all along. So... Uh, it's hard to tell whether it's an actual Axel song or not. We don't know for sure, but but it might be. So you'll just have to check it out, see if uh, see what you think. I, for one, did not know that the Looney Tunes were still around, uh, new Looney Tunes or otherwise. I thought that was a thing of my childhood that was gone by the wind, but apparently things don't die and, uh, and just keep living on, which I'm okay with. The Looney Tunes are great, so uh, maybe I'll have to check that out and... Uh, and see if the new Axel song is uh, is really him or not. Um, all right, let's talk Super Bowl. We're uh, getting closer to the Super Bowl, and uh, and apparently, like the Oscars, they're having trouble finding some talent. Uh, the Cardi B uh, turned down the Super Bowl offer to stand in solidarity with Colin Kaepernick, uh, and. Um, uh, she was not particularly interested in uh, participating because of how she feels about uh, Kaepernick and the whole movement. She said she won't perform at next year's Super Bowl uh, in a display of solidarity. Uh, she was demanding $6 million to perform G Girls Like You with headliners uh, Maroon 5 at next year's event, Page Six initially reported. However, Rolling Stone now claims that although talks were held between the Super Bowl bosses and Cardi's management, it's likely that she'll snub any proposed performance in order to stay with Colin. 
Um, so there's apparently there's never a firm offer to begin with. There were talks about it, but she wasn't particularly interested in participating because of how she feels about the whole uh, Kaepernick um, movement thing. Um, and uh, what's interesting is that a subsequent petition for Maroon 5 to cancel the show was then signed by over 70,000 people before it was claimed that they struggled to find any artist who would be willing to join them. However, their performance could be provided a lifeline by Travis Scott. Um, he could still perform at the event, joined by Outcast Big Boy. Um, and uh, last year, this year, I guess 2018's uh, Super Bowl halftime show had Justin Timberlake performing to an audience of over 100 million viewers. So I don't understand how it's so hard for them to book an uh, artist for uh, the biggest stage that an artist will ever play on and the number of albums that are sold after the super bowl is just ridiculous right so that's really surprising i don't really also don't really know cardi b or any of her music uh i hear she kind of has her own language uh that she uh talks and jibber jabs through I, I don't know again i don't know her stuff but um surprising to hear uh so many artists turning it down Kind of like, like I said, like the Oscars, which is having trouble getting a host uh, because of uh, uh, the, the whole deal with Kevin Hart that uh, that they originally had booked to host the Oscars, and then uh, they cornered him, and he ended up turning it down after after that. Um, all right, let's talk Ozzy Osbourne. The Ozman cometh here, right? Um, so he says that people, ha- I mean, I guess people had the intentions of his No More Tours 2 trek wrong, believing that it's a farewell tour when he just intends to stop wide-scale touring. Very convenient, I say, uh, by the way, calling it a No More Tours tour uh, and really just kind of raking in the cash from people who think that by the title, he is not going to be touring again, and that this might be their last time to see him. Uh, so uh, he t- uh, told the Pasadena Star News, people have gotten that all wrong. Uh, the tour uh, should have been uh, the Ozzy Osbourne slowing down tour. What I'm actually doing is not going out on January 1st and coming back on December 31st. I'll still tour, but not as extensively like I have been for the last 50 years. I mean, I have grandchildren now and I'm 70 years old and I don't want to be found dead in a hotel room somewhere. I'm going to do it at more leisurely pace and do some shows in Vegas, but I'll never stop. The whole lifestyle I've lived, uh, it has uh, all come down to the fact that there are people who want to hear me, uh, and as long as they want to hear me, I'm there. So the No More Tours tour is uh, kind of a little bit of a false title, um, and apparently Ozzy won't be going away. So that's great to hear. Uh, keep going, Ozzy. I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm good with it. But I think you did kind of have a go at people uh, and, uh, and take their money uh, for, for this tour when uh, it's not actually the case. All right, let's talk about Sammy Hagar and his big plans for 2019. Uh, He's looking ahead to what's in store for 2019 while sharing some highlights of his experiences in this past year in a video update that he provided. Uh, The Red Rocker and his supergroup, The Circle, will open the new year with a January 18 performance at the Desert Classic Concert Series at PGA West um, as part of the 60th annual um, Desert Classic PGA Tournament. 
the band is going to release their debut studio album, Space Between, early in 2019, and play it in its entirety on the road uh, with more details on the record and a companion tour to come. In the spring, Sammy's going to return for a fourth season of Sammy Hagar's Rock and Roll Road Trip, um, the AXS TV series that sees him interview and often perform with some of the most popular and influential musicians in rock. Uh, and ahead of his annual October birthday bash show in Mexico, Circle's going to headline the second annual High Tide Beach Party and Car Show uh, on the shores of Huntington Beach following its inaugural event this fall. Uh, so um, so lots of big things coming up for uh, Sammy Hagar, which is really exciting. And, of course, uh, I haven't in a long time, don't plan to uh, this time miss... Uh, an opportunity to uh, share a story related to Dave Grohl uh, from the Foo Fighters. So there's video of Taylor Hawkins, the Foo Fighters drummer, uh, 11-year-old son, uh, performing with his dad and Dave Grohl. Um, so Violet Grohl is, uh, isn't the only foods, uh, foods kid with musical talent. Um, the 11-year-old son provi- uh, re- uh, performed, excuse me, with... Uh, uh, Taylor and Dave, as I mentioned. Oliver Shane Hawkins made an appearance at his father's 70s dirt rock cover band, Chevy Metal, as a be- uh, at a benefit for the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank on Saturday, December 22nd. He performed on one song, a version of the Rolling Stones' Miss You. So, uh... Grohl also performed on that cover as well as several others, including the Rolling Stones' Bitch, Thin Lizzy's Jailbreak, and Black Sabbath's The Wizard. So, uh, of course, there's video online if you uh, want to check that out, but uh, pretty cool for them to uh, to bring the kid on stage. And also, really cool when, um, uh, when an artist kid kind of can follow in his uh, father's footsteps. And, I mean, I know there's got uh, to be a... Uh, Whoa, a little bit of concert pipeline intro there. Uh, there's got to be a, uh, a, you know, a challenge to that, right? In terms of filling the uh, the shoes, like kind of that that your parent has paved, like knowing that you're the odds of you being as great as one of the greats like that are not likely, but still enjoying it, still wanting to learn from your parents, still kind of pushing yourself to do your your best is uh, is really pretty amazing. So. Um, so that's it. That's the story. Check it out uh, if you uh, if you want. So I want to thank everybody for uh, tuning into Concert Pipeline for uh, all of the episodes in 2018. Hopefully, we have a lot of new great content for you guys uh, come 2019. Um, only way to know for sure is to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Uh, leave us a good rating also. That'd be awesome if you uh, would take a moment to do that. Um, make sure to follow us on all the social media as well, facebook.com forward slash Concert Pipeline Pod. Uh, also, YouTube, Periscope, Instagram, Twitter, all of those um, are at Concert Pipeline. So I want to take a moment to thank all of the artists that have been on the program this year including some really memorable interviews uh, with people that I really respect and other artists that I haven't uh, gotten a chance to uh, experience before. I hadn't met, I hadn't talked to, so I've had a lot of really great conversations over the year. Um, 
And uh, and again, some of my favorites uh, from this past year, including Andrew McMahon of Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness. Uh, really great to talk talk to him in October. Ben Fong Torres was awesome. I got to interview him uh, from Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, uh, he was the editor of Rolling Stone magazine back um, in, uh, into the 80s. And uh, he was on our 200th episode, which is really a milestone. I mean, it's great. It's so cool to have been able to hit over 200 episodes at this point um, and uh, be moving towards 300, maybe. We'll see. Um, let's see. Who else uh, do we interview? Of course, we had uh, Foreigner on the podcast um, for the, the third time. Um, a really moving conversation, uh, twice actually we interviewed Essence. Um, he, uh, she, uh, w- w- um, had a really touching story about Bernie and the believers, uh, Bernie who, uh, had Lou Gehrig's, has Lou Gehrig's disease and, um, and, sh- uh, she made music with him and kind of told his story which is uh, really awesome. Um, Steve Poltz was a lot of fun. Got to uh, interview him at Guitar Fish Festival. Cone Brio we had on the podcast again. Uh, so many, so many great artists. And I'm just, as I'm just looking back over, uh, over this year and all the, uh, cool shows that we've gotten to cover Yontville live. We had Rita Wilson on the program, uh, Tom Hanks wife, right? That's, that's, that's pretty awesome. Um, as well as some other artists, you know, a bunch of other artists from Yontville live. Matt Costa was great. He performed for the, the podcast as well. Got to interview him again. Kimbra was a lot of fun. Uh, she put on a great, great show. Uh, that, that was a really good one. Who, who else did we have? I think those are. I mean, those are some of the notable ones for for the year. So, I want to thank Yen Schippel again for uh, as well for uh, doing the podcast uh, for uh, the past couple of years that he's been doing it. Great to have him on the the program. So, thank you for tuning in. For all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. We'll catch you next year.